truly in the mind of an eight-year-old, eight and nine-year-old, I really thought that if I took a photo that it was going to be like a superpower because I, I wanted to be able to look at the print and help me transport back to this place. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 53 with highly celebrated documentary photographer Michael Turek. I met Michael by chance at Sophie Roberts' house just before they travelled to Scotland together to work on a new project. As you are probably aware, Sophie featured in episodes 50 and 51 of the podcast and Michael travelled with her on her long-form Lost Pianos of Siberia project, taking photographs along the way resulting in his book, Siberia, which is available online. In this episode of the podcast, we dig in depth into Michael's inspiration and motivations, exploring how his dual heritage, exploring Yorkshire and New York, have shaped the way he thinks and feels today, and how he ended up traveling the world in pursuit of, as he puts it, time travel. Have you done this sort of thing before? Um, a little bit with, uh, you know, I've spoken to actually another photographer friend who was trying to do podcasts and, and he had one about a year ago that he put together that we ended up just drinking too many beers afterwards. But I, I do lead like film photography workshops. Uh, I often like speak with students at schools around New York. So I'm often talking about my work or particularly the aspect of shooting with film and how that relates to the whole creative process. So I definitely, I, I definitely speak at length about that. So you may have to stop me if I get into that because that stuff gets, it depends where we go, but that can be really earthy, crunchy and philosophical about it. But that's a big part about it. And we kind of hinted on that before about, I can be really maybe too glib about why I really shoot on film one way or not. We can unpack that. Yeah, sure. I think that's it. Like, this is the adventure podcast, you know, and I think mm. when people first hear that, they think, oh, it's all about, you know, Red Bull, adrenaline and extreme activities. But the reality is very different. We've interviewed fair, you know, sh shepherds on the Faroe Islands and it's like adventure means lots of different things to different people. You've traveled the world as a photographer, you know, you can introduce yourself, but it's how your experiences have shaped the person that you are now. And I think that starts, you know, in America and it starts in Yorkshire. Yeah, actually the it's funny. So I'll on the Yorkshire bit, this is uh kinda in the film the uh it has a really big bearing on the on the film aspect. So uh you know, I grew up in the States but my my mom's family is all from Yorkshire and so I I got into photography as a kid there because my aunt and uncle, or rather my uncle was always a really keen photographer, amateur photographer. And one Christmas, he sent me a little cheap Olympus, uh, actually it wasn't Olympus, it was like an Opus camera that you got at like an Asda. That was, I remember opening it up and it was in a plastic container that you could never really open properly without a sharp pair of scissors. And, and I didn't use it that until that summer when I went back to, to England because I was there for, and of course the American school breaks were three months long and I, and I loved those periods. I hated September. I hated going back to school because I was, it was a child's playground for me there. It was really, 
you know, those moors and those valleys I, I spoke to before, Wharfdale, like that was where I had my best childhood memories. And when I had this camera, it became a way in the, truly in the mind of an eight-year-old, eight and nine-year-old, I really thought that if I took a photo that it was going to be like a superpower because I, I wanted to be able to look at the print and help me transport back to this place. Because I don't, I don't like some kids, you, you know, you like what superpower do you want? And I, I really wanted to have sort of photographic memory. I thought that would be really sweet to, to be able to see something and to recall it completely. And I had this idea that if I could, when I was back at school, back in Virginia, if I could begin to remember the exact sense of smell and touch and taste and each, if I could just lock down each sensation and then eventually, uh, with the help of that, that photo, you know, instill the sense of like the vision of what it looked like, then basically I would travel there. It would be like teleportation. Like I really thought, like again, going through the mind of like an eight-year-old, very impressionable eight-year-old, I really thought that by looking at a photo hard enough, I might be able to go back. And nobody had just done it. Nobody had really worked hard enough on it. And so this was, and it always failed. And it never quite worked. And so it was like, well, maybe my photography is not good enough. Obviously, I didn't take a, better, a good enough photo for it. So that was always the inspiration to really try to take a better photo so that I could teleport. Why did eight-year-old Michael want to teleport back so much? Because that was, uh, it was a, it, that, that landscape. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure how familiar you are with, with Wharfdale, I mean, Yorkshire Dales. Um, it was, I found it to be a really, and I still describe it this way, I find it's a, on a human scale. It's a very human scale. It's very playful. It's, it's really a whimsical landscape. And I think one of the big differences is, um, there's not a ton of trees. Growing up as opposed to in Virginia, where yes, you have the Appalachian Mountains and Blue Ridge, but everything's tree covered. And so you can't really see the skin of the land. You don't really see the folds and all the textures. And you just see a carpet of, of trees, which is pretty in its own right, but it doesn't have the same character. I felt also that in in Yorkshire, those those valleys, you it was very... Um, it was very inviting. If you're on one side of a valley and you want to go to the other, you can really do that. You can, and of course, right of way in the UK is pretty permissive. You can you can jump over a fence. I mean, if you have a, I didn't have a dog with me or anything. You just don't go mess with the livestock. It's something you could do. Whereas in the states, you can't really jump fences. You, you're liable to get shot. There's posted signs all over. No trespassing with the freaking silhouette of a rifle. It's just it's pretty unfriendly. That's not something you can do. And it's also, you know, it's not the Alps. It's not objectively the most beautiful part of the world. It's not even the Lake District. But because it was so accessible, you don't need uh, carabinas and belays and cap mountain, you know, uh, helmets to scramble around the landscape. So it was really for a child and for the skills that I have now, which is nothing more than what I had when I was nine. It's a really accessible landscape. You don't have to, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to wear crampons or anything like that. So it's just out the door and you're in it. So, and I guess that was maybe different than what I had in Virginia and my suburban life back home. So very long story, but that is why that place meant so much to me as just a playground, just a straight sandbox that I could play in. 
and it was beautiful and it smelled amazing and it, it the light was incredible any time of year and I really hated I really hated to leave it and and I thought photography would help me go back and that's why I said it was important because I think that sort of built-in failure of photography to do what I wanted to do makes me keep on wanting to do it because otherwise like if you do something successful like why do you want to do it again and photography gets ever so close to being this perfect recall and it's sometimes very hard to read it you know or, or like how to how to see how to look at it and we've become very accustomed and and you know we're 170 years after it was invented and we're completely used to it but i still think it's sort of semi magical but not 100%. So it's close, but not quite. God, that's an amazing perspective to look at it from. I mean, why more so than film, where you can hear it? Oh, dude. So, okay. I, I, how I, I want to talk about Yorkshire. Sorry to interrupt, but there was part of it. So I started the whole long story, and this is where you got to cut me off because I go way too long. I started photographing in Yorkshire when I was a kid, and it was just what I did. By the time I was in high school, it was becoming like a serious thing for me. I Then I had a great teacher in high school who said, you know, you can go to school for this. And I'm like, holy shit, that's amazing. Uh, I went to university. I studied. I stayed in the States. I wanted very badly to come to the UK, actually. That's a whole other story. But I was so close to coming to the UK for university. Stayed in the States. Throughout all this period, I was uh, I would continue to go back to Yorkshire. I was photographing. It sort of accidentally turned into my longest-running personal project. Uh, it was a place I, and I called it Holiday and Home because it was where I went on holiday, but it was always also home at the same time. So it was a special relationship for me. And I had shot that as a child uh, on film, of course, and then by the early 2000s, I transitioned to digital uh, I shot it on digital, and then in twenty at the end of twenty twelve, uh, my girlfriend Rosanna moved in, or well, she was she was settling into my apartment, small apartment in New York. Opens the fridge, first thing you do, starting to clean out my mess, and sees that the fridge is full up with old expired film from my university days because I hadn't used it really since around two thousand two. And so she says, okay, you know, get rid of this or use it up or do whatever. I was going back to Yorkshire shortly thereafter, and I said, fine, I will, I will dust off the old Pentax, and I will use up this film. And I went back, and that experience, after about eight years of shooting exclusively on digital, was a revelation to return to film. And I think my experience with that was only I only felt that way because I had had that near decade of shooting on film on, on digital and it was such a shock to the system to go back to this medium format method of working that I just realized oh, I, I got to stick with it and this was before this was I was there for about 10 days I hadn't got the film process yet and I, but it was just and this is where I, I really I'm clear about this because in those in those days, I mean, 12 years ago or what have you, eight years ago, there was a lot of conversation about, oh, like, you know, which way does one look better than the other? And I'm like, that's besides the point. It was all about the fact that you couldn't see the image on the back of the screen, on the back of the camera. And it was so, it was such a an alleviating 
feeling not to be distracted by the LCD screen on the back of the camera that I realized in a really counterintuitive way, I found that the, the restrictions or the parameters of, of shooting on film, particularly this stuff, you know, we only get 10 shots a roll, was actually, it induced um, more creativity. In, 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 a, in a faster way. Let me see if I can say it again. Like it's, um, I found it, it, it was counterintuitive to me that, that by the, the you know, they, they say like, you know, parameters help you, help you be creative because otherwise, you know, if you're given free reign, it's very hard to, to, to create. And I think fundamentally as a photographer, it's, uh, it's common that we're deeply indecisive because you know you can take so many uh you can take so many photos i mean hell you can work at a much faster rate than a painter you know even in 1839 when you know you might take one photo an hour uh it's still a lot faster than making the commitment of putting your easel out and spending a day on something and so this type of restriction compared to when i was shooting digital was this whole new way or I sort of recognized the way of working that gave me these parameters that enabled me to find creative solutions faster, whether it was a portrait or it was a still life or a landscape. I would come across a scene, you would take one photo, two photos, maybe three, starting to get expensive. You're like, okay, uh, you know, you really need to, this is my internal dialogue, you really need to look at this really intensely and figure out what is the most harmonious way you can compose this photo or you can frame this to 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 tell to tell the story of what you're seeing in the most efficient and aesthetic way that you possibly can and that level of engagement was really it's really pleasurable and so that whole experience just uh, made me fall in love with the whole act of taking photos in a whole new way because what it did was it, it was sort of like a it was like a I don't know like a heads up device it just you're out there in the world I'm walking around Yorkshire and it's it was just uh, it was a reminder just to keep my eyes on the scene rather than being distracted by the machine in my hand and constantly looking down. And also what happens when you do that, when you, when you look back down at the camera is you're constantly super, or you're constantly having to create and edit at the same time. And those two processes are diametrically opposed and should be as separated, separated with time and space as you can, because you should just create, 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 create. And then the editing, which is more of a, you know, and that's creating is an additive process and the, editing is subtractive they don't really go together and if you can and you just separate them now of course i mean there's there's times when you know i still have a digital camera i'm not religious about this but and the type of work that i do it's permissive that i can take my time like this uh but it was like i said i it really felt like a revelation and i don't think i would have had that return to film if I hadn't spent all the time with digital if I hadn't dived into digital I remember in 04 I left university and I, I jumped in with two legs but this was all this was all back in Yorkshire because I was all 
I was I was shooting there, using up this old film from college. I came back with it, and I remember showing it to some photo editors who were familiar with my work, who had seen this project over the years. And even in 2012, the first thing they asked, which was just mind blowing to me, and these these editors, some, you know, they were 40, 50 years old. They they'd been around. They'd been around during all the film days. The first question, even this, they're like, "Oh, what filter is this? Did you what filter in Instagram was this?" And I was just like hanging my head because. I couldn't believe that even in that span of the short time, less than 10 years of sort of the industry moving to digital, even these experienced photo editors, their visual vocabulary had changed so much so that when they first saw this stuff, their, their first question was like, well, what's, what's the filter? And, and, th- and then that gets back to, again, I'm not really concerned with comparing which looks better because if you have at this rate you know if you have digital file you can do whatever you want to make it look like film it's fine for me the the reason that i went back to film was i found it made my whole method of finding a creative solution to any kind of problem to any kind of reacting to something you like was more streamlined and efficient because it made me ask harder more concise questions like you know you come across a scene um or or a portrait or what have you and it's like you really have to let's really think about this and sometimes i can't find an answer i'm like then don't take the photo and that was that shocking it's like you have to leave this one you don't like don't if you can't figure it out don't bash your head against the wall maybe you're, it's not meant to not meant to be and and that sort of allowed me to be way more zen about it because I could just blame, well, like, oh, it's too expensive. I'm not going to waste film on it. But also that level of heightened engagement that you get because of the threat of its limitations, not caring that much of it. It's expensive. Uh, it's, it's just a repetition of the last shot. I don't take it. And oh, by the way, then the photo editors, who then I started taking photos, I started taking, you know, doing assignments on film, it, it turned out that they reacted positively as well because when I came home from an assignment, if I had to do a portrait, let's say, uh, of someone, instead of having turning in 75 versions of the same image, which according to me, I could discern some kind of differences, I was really, I was coming across like maybe like three true variations. You know, again, you take those two or three shots in one setting and you're like, okay, this is getting expensive. Now let's go move outside. And then you do three shots out there and then you go back into it and then you walk 50 feet down the street and you do something else. So as it turns out, the editor's job is much easier because they're actually editing different photos for layout or what have you. And so all of a sudden, I'm like a better photographer <laughs> in their mind. And, it, and there, was, there was nothing to it. I didn't really change anything. All I did was I just made my own creative process more constrained and that allowed me to, and that's what I meant by allowing me to find creative solutions faster. The creative process is obviously incredibly important to you, and it seems like it underpins a lot of the motivation. Why not just stay in New York and photograph people there? Why oh. travel around the world? Oh man, I mean, that going, you know, it's funny. I don't even, I haven't really even talked about this too much. But when I was uh, in high school, I, I looked at schools in New York. But uh, you know, I had this idea. I wanted to go to school. Hell, I wanted to go to school. I looked at schools 
all over the UK, but I really wanted to go to Glasgow because it was close to A82, and I wanted my I, I wanted to get a Defender 110, and and I wanted to just to drive up to Glencoe every weekend, and take photos. That's what I thought I wanted to do, and I went to look at a school in New York City, and I saw fire escapes on the side of brick buildings, and I had no idea how to photograph that. Uh, as it turns out, I think probably now my landscape work is probably what bores me the most because I think it was I think I always love it. I always know I will love it. it I, I get a strong reaction to it, but I'm probably most proud of my portrait work because I think I've had to I had to work at it so much. And that has been a struggle and there are definitely limitations I find. you know I, I can only draw upon so much of my own, uh, innate creativity to find solutions there, but bringing it back to what we we're speaking about with the collaborative process with Sophie and working with a writer, uh, I sort of found a, accidentally found a situation which allowed me to find allowed me to get into situations with subjects that I never would be able to pre-visualize or direct. Uh, because the two of us are in this situation. I mean, I could get into that if you like as well, but that's, that's, that was a big step for me. And, and, and so now it doesn't matter if I was back to your New York comment, whether it's New York or Yorkshire or wherever, I really, it doesn't really matter. But, um, okay. The, um, that, the collaborative thing that I have found happen, particularly working with Sophie Is, so so it really it really expressed itself on this project in Russia, the Siberia project. So what would happen often is we were knocking on doors and meeting subjects that Sophie was wishing to interview, and we would get ourselves into a room which I hadn't seen before, or quite literally going into a space which I hadn't seen before. I had no control over. We would meet people in happenstance, or perhaps we knew where it was going to be. So I'm going in with no preconception of what this is going to be like, not even seeing the person. Um, so it's just, I'm just, you know, we're, we're, we're shedding off all kinds of layers of control. And then we have, we're not sure how this is going to be going. Sophie, oftentimes the interviewee or the subject doesn't really know what this is about. This is sort of the first meeting. They're unsure. We have no idea how long this is going to last. When you're in the room with Sophie and I, in Russia with a, a local subject. We don't speak Russian, so we're working through an uh, interpreter. Everything slows right down. And often what happens is eventually tea gets served and you know niceties get passed back and forth slowly through an interpreter. And eventually Sophie gets to work drilling down into an interview. Meanwhile, I'm just sort of just sitting there. I've drank my tea. I've been polite for a while. I'm looking around. But if I want to, if I want to go just sort of wander around after 30 minutes of being in somebody's home, it's all of a sudden, it's kind of okay for me to do that because everyone's cool. Everyone's kind of got used to it. So now I can start just literally floating around, walking around, and it's not weird. It's not weird for this other person just to quietly like leave the conversation because also you know, there's that, that separation of the language as well. So I can start um, finding little details, working, coming at the subject uh, obliquely, 
my pressure, my sense of the, the pressure of the, and the weight of a camera up in somebody's face is so much lessened. Because during this whole time, Sophie is just building a rapport with the subject, which I, just by being in the room, I get sort of accredited that, that rapport as well. So she's sort of done half the work for me. And this is what really, this is what's so special about actually working in a foreign language. And of course, this can't be repeated, but because of the, can't be repeated if we're working in English here, but when you are speaking between an interpreter, there's moments that happen where you, where the subject says something back, and then that has to get translated through. And for a moment, then the subject will sit back in their chair, they'll reposition themselves, they will look off in out the window because they will just now reconsider what they just said because they may have just said something that they've never articulated before and those types of like physical gestures which is always sort of the holy grail of portrait work that come about this sort of this reprieve or these this sort of language rape that i'm always very attracted to people you know like the the waist the crook of an arm or an elbow or the way a wrist goes over the side of a table all these things that I, I know that I love, but I couldn't walk into a set and say, that's exactly what I want. But when I see it happen, I know it. And I'm now invited into a space where this conversation is happening in what seems to be slow motion. And while that last statement, whatever the subject had just said, well, there's like a 30 second delay as it goes through the interpreter back to Sophie. And then Sophie's now talking back to the interpreter to clear something up. And meanwhile, the subject is left exposed, let's say, and they're in this sort of this moment of contemplation. And then I'm there. I'm already I'm already there. So all the work is done with me and I'm just sort of sniping off moments where that that are really really intimate. But it, again, it's um it's something where at first was really hard because I I had to like, like lose all the control because I couldn't really direct too much. It wasn't really my show. It wasn't really my place to um, set everything up. I mean, sometimes that happened with time, and but then with these little gaps. And then sometimes if the interview was, was stalling out, in those times I could step in and I could actively direct. And then it takes the, it takes the, the attention back to me and then allows sometimes to Sophie to recalibrate the conversation if it's dead-ended down in a direction she doesn't want to take. And then, and just like the, the dynamics you have in a conversation with a subject where you don't, whether, like I said, if it's dead-ending or it's going into a territory that is uncomfortable or it's, or it's not getting into that uncomfortable territory that she wants it to get into, I can then come in and it's a momentarily uh, a deflection and... And then it's, there's all kinds of reactions that happen, you know, with a subject, uh, with a camera. And, and so it turns out that that whole collaboration, let's call it, during interviews with portraits turned out to be the best thing. And now that is the only way I want to do it. Are you still trying to create perfect moments that you can go back to? Or are you trying to say something? Uh, I don't know if I'm still trying. I don't know if I honestly have the same. Insp like, hmm. 
the stuff in Yorkshire, like that is so deeply personal because that is like straight up, that is a straight connection back to my previous childhood self. That is a pure conversation back to my eight-year-old self because, you know, the landscape's still there. It's still the same places. You, you see it over and over again. Photographing the same places over and over again uh, is... I don't know what I, I don't know what I was gonna say. It's like a exercise and it's a, some sort of relationship. I'm not sure, but it's and that's very unlike most of my assignments. Of course, like with assignments, you just breeze in, parachute in somewhere. Uh, I will say one of the very special things about working in Siberia on such a long-term project, which was very different than what Sophie and I had done previously in our editorial work together, is that uh, it was a strange sort of sensation and a rush to return to a place which at first on my first trip felt so foreign, careful to use the word exotic, but just very different, very alien and, and in a place where I arrived and I was shooting the hell out of it. I can tell you because that first trip I shot like, I think 77 rolls of film that first, that first trip and every successive trip, I made five trips, every, every trip I made less and less photos. The more time I returned, I think that I don't want to, and I'm careful, I don't want to say that I was bored, but, and th going back, this, this is important because you, you mentioned about working in New York. I carry my camera around when I'm in New York, and, and I don't often take photos. Maybe it's one a day. Half the time, those photos are inside. They're like of my dog or of my partner, Rosanna. I, I, you know, who knows? But they're photos, they're not photos of the buildings and the skyscrapers. You know, you say you leave those to the tourists because maybe, I mean, maybe the light's particularly special. But you always wonder about, you know, what would a, what are the photos a local would take rather than a foreigner or somebody abroad and, and wanting to take those types of photos. And what happened in Russia was that by the end of that, I felt that I was starting to take the types of photos that I might take in New York at home in a place that was very, very foreign before. And that was a huge exhilarating rush to, to, to have that. I mean, I'm getting chills now thinking about, because I never, I've never had that, because on my assignments, I'm always just in a place for five days. You're never a local after that. But returning, I, I can't say it enough, returning to a place that at first felt so foreign and then having it become familiar and finding myself making less and less photos because... Yeah, maybe I took that one last time. Or I've already seen that. That was, I don't know. It, I don't know what to call it. It was almost like as a, as a personal enrichment or like a wealth. Like that was, that was the best. That is such a, a deeply rich experience for me personally. Uh, and those photos start to reflect that, I guess, in at least my mind. Because I was at a place where I was really comfortable in a place that I wasn't at first. Yeah. I mean, you speak so passionately about it and you've just sat there getting literal goosebumps on your arm. Why can't you just be present there? Why is the process of taking a photograph, making a photograph? Oh, man. I don't, well, that's, uh, that, that's a whole corruption of photography. It's a really, it's a huge mindfuck. I mean, because uh... most of the people I speak to sit here and they tell me about their travels. And this is not a criticism. I think it's incredible. You're telling me about the photographs. Are you? Do you struggle to be present? 
No, I think the camera, um, well, yes, of course, of course, absolutely, 100%. We're human and we're like trying to move, I mean, this gets really, you know, into time and photography is this weird thing where you take a, a fraction of a second and you record it and time doesn't appear to move that way, of course, because it's always just flowing. So you have this deeply, you have this artifact which is deeply uh, real, but it's actually the furthest from our experience that can be. So it's this really, it's this, the language of photography is really complicated. It's the most real record of reality we have, except that it's the most, at the same time, it's deeply false because it doesn't, I mean, I don't know, then you can talk about motion picture and how much does that work. But of course, that's still a record of something. I mean, it gets into it. As far as I'm concerned, I, I think photography for me is, um, look, I remember, who was it? I think it was when, it was either when, was it Henry Cartier-Bresson died and they were going through his apartment and they found like 9,000 unexposed rolls or, or, or unprocessed rolls of film. And everyone was like, my God, like, you know, what, how could, why did he not process what, what, what gems are in here? Or, uh, how did he not, why did he, why was he not interested in processing the film? And I remember hearing like all the photographers just automatically got it because the artifact, the actual print, the photo after the fact is hardly the point. It was more about making the photo and having the camera with you. And that's why I, you know, I take the camera in New York around, not so much to come away with some treasured image or a print, but it just, it's, I don't, I don't, um, it's just having the, it's having the camera there by your side so that when you cross from the sunny side of the street to the shadow side of the street, you know, you've just lost two stops of light. And so you're just that much more aware of I'm too, I should, I like, let me switch the aperture ring now. And so it's, you're just engaging with the moment. Is there anything happening right now on this shady side of the street? Uh, probably not, but let me just get ready. So now your little walk to the grocery store is that much more um, present because you just got ready for something. I don't know, whatever. Nothing happened. Nothing happened yesterday either, but you were, you, you, um, you loaded the gun. I don't know. Uh, it's a sort of a crass analogy, but um, that's, I find the camera is a ticket to ride. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a meditation device, if you will, that it forces you to be ready and, and look at things uh, with a hopeful expectation. And maybe something was close and it's sort of like fishing. I don't even we're talking like I love it. Like you see something like maybe not today, but if I come back tomorrow at the same time, or maybe in two weeks when the sun will be a little, like a centimeter lower in the sky, uh, it could be better. And so that is just that's a pleasure. You've just picked the perfect analogy, whether you meant to or not. I mean, how much of fishing is about catching fish? Oh, dude, I mean, I ask friends all the time to go fishing with me and they're always like, but, and then they do and we don't catch anything. And half the time it's like, you know, I'm like, dude, if you're trying to, if you're counting the fish you catch is that's your metric. Like, well, if you think fishing is about catching fish, then you're, you're not getting it. But, you know, that's why I love fishing because it's just an excuse to get out there. And it's just, I find it's just the right amount of mental workload to keep you slightly distracted that I'm not thinking about emails but enough that I'm watching, observing, just really being in a moment, like that I'm not that way, you know, it's different than hiking or anything else. And it's, 
it's I, I love it that's why fishing is is hugely important for me as um just meditating if you want to call it that well it's all meditative isn't it yeah. what you're talking about yeah and but i think back to the the question about um you know, being in the moment or being present, uh, absolutely. It, it, yes, photography, 100%. Uh, film helps me just... Uh, film helps me... It heightens that experience. I think it just abridges the whole experience. It, it abridges the process of becoming aware of the moment more so than digital for me. Uh, it's just, it just in that counterintuitive way. Um, that's why... I find it really successful. I mean, is it any different? I mean, it, it is different, but lots of people I've spoken to, they're rock climbers or mountaineers. Now, that's a process in itself of going from place to place and enduring something, learning something. But actually, for many people, it's an excuse to travel. Oh, yeah. To what extent is what you do an excuse to travel, whether that's across New York to go and photograph something interesting or to Chad or Siberia? Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah. Travel, it's a funny thing to talk about now for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's always been something that I, I really get a, I, like a, I don't know, what do you call it? Dopamine, serotonin? You get some sort of fix out of it for sure. Uh, I still have a really romantic notion on, on getting on planes. Particularly, you know, I, I, I had a... I, getting on those transatlantic flights as a kid, coming to see my family here in the UK, you know, the fact that I was up past nine o'clock with adults in a plane, of course, there were smoking sections then. So, I mean, tell me, let me paint this picture. You know, there you, on the plane, you would have these, you know, it, it, it's now, it's 11 o'clock, you're somewhere over Gander, Newfoundland, and, you know, it's, it's black outside, and you have these guys, you know, with with weird attache and, uh, you know, what do you call it? Um, suitcases or briefcases. And they're drawing on something or they're scribbling on something with, uh, you know, a fountain pen with a overhead light, you know, in the cabin and there's, you know, a cigarette. It was pretty photogenic. You know, I was thinking about those sort of the businessmen flying between New York and London back and forth. But I, I, I was really impressionable, but I, I thought that was... Uh, that was such a thrill, and the whole concept of waking up a day later and in the morning was—it um, was time travel. Like, so it's like, wait, we're now five hours ahead, and so everybody else back home is still asleep. Like, this is this is such a this blew my mind. It still kind of blows my mind. I, it's magic. I mean, you know, and the 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 ability to travel like that. I I've just have not gotten over the fact that you can sit in a thin three millimeter tube of aluminum at 500 miles per hour and travel like that that just just not over that at all do you think most people analyze things and look at things in the way that you do i'm uh some people maybe uh i don't know but what is that you know what's that who was it oscar wilde said the unexamined life is not worth living uh uh, I don't remember it was Prost. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, and I like my work. I like and and going back to portraiture and all this stuff. My work is really it's reactionary. And I found this too. Like when I was younger, I try to do work. I try to do still life or studio fashion. 
And that type of creativity really needs to be, you really have to have sort of an organic sense of creativity where you can walk into a white room and construct out of nothing. And that is an amazing skill. And I do not have that. I found, and this was a bit of a blow to my ego when I had to sort of come to terms that I can't do that, can't build from scratch, but I could work subtractively. You could put me in a space and I can, and, and that's the whole thing about, you know, that little box, a little rectangle that the viewfinder is, that it's basically, you have this 365, 360 degree invitation to put the box around anything but you have to say no 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 yes on on this little box and that has to be and and that sort of discretion or discrimination that you make as to how uh, a certain composition of you know i'm looking out the window and trees and lines of hills or whether it's back in new york and it's as i said brick walls and fire escapes there's a combination of those elements whether that you have to come across and and it's your discretion to to i don't know what's the word editorialize just to or or make that subjective make that you know objective world that everybody else sees to your subjective view and that is a i don't it's to me it's just a really pleasurable engagement with the it's like a little it's like a little game it's like a little it's a it's a fun little thing to do all the time but I don't know when you call it analytical or analyzing, but it's just uh, exploring the most out of, you know, your, your set of eyes. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering where to weave this question in, but now it seems perfect. You know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but what does adventure mean to you? Not the dictionary definition, not someone else's definition. I, I was trying to recall. I thought I thought it was something really clever I read the other day, but I can't. Um, I you know adventure is always just. I think what we were speaking about before adventure is anytime your brain is engaged. For me, anytime your brain is engaged in trying to you know make a new mental map of a place that you haven't walked before, or you know I I did read that. It was an anecdote, or not an anecdote, but just uh, it was it was sort of an article about brain waves and what happens when you when you turn a doorknob in your own house, which you know the exact amount of pressure and weight you need to put onto your wrist to turn the doorknob to the bathroom in the middle of the night when you have to go and take a piss. And it's completely different when you walk into a stranger's house or any other place where your whole body is constantly having to find out um, you, know, the, you know, the height of the stairs or the steps that lead to your front door or what have you. When you have a bag of groceries that come from a new supermarket that you just try to buy new food from and all of these new elements that are flooding your brain with little, uh, basically new, new, um, connections or what have you. It's, it's all about, it's going back to that idea of trying to, uh, discover new things for your brain to be engaged on when you're faced with something sometimes really subtly new, but I don't know. I just feel really awake when that happens. Um, and that's, 
that's I don't fun is the wrong word, but I don't maybe people get the kick out of it when they're doing a crossword puzzle. But uh, yeah, new you know doorknobs. I keep on coming back to that, but when when you open somebody else's front door, you don't know how 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 much weight you have to twist on it, and that's kind of a little little kick of pleasure because you're trying to figure it out. And I don't know, it just feels, um, it feels exciting. That's, uh, yeah, adventure, hell. Then you couple that with uh, doing something seriously adventure, adventurous, like, you know, traveling to, traveling to Siberia for over 100 days over the course of five trips and and it's just a constant flood of new sensations. And then, like I said, but then there's something very special when, when what happened there, when those new sensations begin to sink in and you can r recall that, oh yeah, this, uh, this type of doorknob typically weighs this much. And I know that now because I've been here before in a place that I never, never thought I would be before. So I think that's, and that's like inside you now, and that's like part of your your knowledge that you just that's like you just know that. So that when you meet, you know, you meet people, and you know, one of the first questions you ask people is like, you know, where are you from? You try to find some sort of common ground, and you know, you find something like you've been to this place. Now it's like, I know a lot. Like I know a lot of the little things. Like I generally, like for instance, the this the curbs in London are generally way smaller than the curbs in New York. Which always seems funny because, like, don't you get a lot of rain here? But I just, I just think it's really funny that I know that when you're when you're stepping off the curb from a sidewalk pavement in London to the street, you only drop down like three and a half inches, four inches. In New York, like when you go back, I mean, tourists always find this, but it's ooh, it's like, you know, you're going down six inches. It's a big drop, and those little differences that you find out are pleasurable when you travel, but also going back to something now you know when you're familiar with that it's like oh i'm back i remember this it's uh it's just a, it's just equally a very strong sensation i don't know i'm i'm getting way off topic and probably not answering it but just, no no it's really good yeah, I, that's adventure i don't know to me that's just adventure but it's fascinating because you're from yorkshire but you're not from yorkshire right <laughs> and you're from america and yeah. you're not from america and everything you're talking about to me screams of place and sense of place so to what extent do you think that your childhood your upbringing your searching and seeking for that sense of place is still active now and is still what you're doing i always say i probably probably am a new yorker because uh well i'm definitely a new yorker because that's where i pay my taxes so uh that's that's the answer to that question uh I really like New York, but I don't. I don't think. I mean, I think for me, it's between New York and Yorkshire, and I'd be I'd be happy just to leave it at that. With two relationships, and and that's fine. Uh, but I think every time I get to. Okay, well, hold on. I, I, there's something else I want to add. So, like, where we are right now, Sophie's Place in Dorset, and I could get into this whole, my whole weird reaction with being in the South, because it's funny probably to hear an American person talk about how I have, as 
you know, because down here there's no heads on the beer. It's the Southerners don't like what? And like, and and I have a problem with that. But coming back here, I've been to Sophie's house many times, and it's lovely. But I remember just arriving here and talking about the whole travel and coming back to a place which is, you know, door to door. It's about 19 hours, which is can be a long time or not. But it, it to me, it still feels like a long way away. I'm aware of where it's on the map. It's a long way. And to come back to a place and casually be able to slip back into uh, this life with sort of my colleague and friend uh, is that that's a I'm not ever over that too because I speak to Sophie almost every day because we're constantly working on projects and doing stuff with the book launches but then just to see the person see her husband and the kids and the dogs uh, that that was a it was discombobulating in its in the sensation of how casual it was to travel. Maybe it's because I haven't traveled since this whole, since March, really. Uh, I'm way off topic, but I just wanted, like, that was uh, um, a sensation recently that would just really was amazing. Um, but seeking, seeking, seeking a sense of place, uh, yeah, if that was, that was the question. Yeah, but it's all linked. Everything you just yeah. said is linked to the same thing. Look, you know, it's also, also, I mean, basic, basic mind fuckery. But you know, it was like in a Disney cartoon. I still think it's crazy to think that I can look at the sun. You know, this is why webcams. I'm obsessed with webcams because when I'm, I'll, I'll, when I'm in New York, I'll constantly. There's a few webcams in Yorkshire that I'm always checking up just to see. I, it's good because. Most of the time, the weather's terrible, so I don't really feel too bad about it. I don't really feel like I'm missing out, but I'm always checking at it. And it's just, I love it because to me, it's amazing to see that, like, perhaps it's, say, 10 a.m. in New York, and what is it, at 2 p.m. here in, in England, and the sun is still, like, almost in the same place in the sky, as like, and it's it's so far, and to think that that's, that same sun which is baking me in New York is also slightly less baking you know all those places in New Yorkshire that I know at the same time and it's just over there it's way over there or is it just over there I'm not sure like it could be close it could be far like according to the sun's light it's not really that far it's like the same distance it's but for me to walk I couldn't walk it could not walk um, I don't know I a place I, yeah, all kinds of things I think about with that. I love, you know, you step down. England's a bit different because it's an, it's an island, but, I, you know, you, you step down. Well, even you can't do that back home in New York, but I would say, you know, going back to the States and think, wow, like, I'm, you know, if you could run an electric current, you could get down to Argentina with this. Like, you're in that, then you're in that world. Well, then there's the Panama Canal. But... Um, you can swim, right? Yeah, I, you can swim it. But that whole idea that, you know, if if you just go over, you know, you jump over to to Paris, and and I was I was like thought about it that because in you know looking at looking at planes going overhead, and sometimes you know when they're coming to land and you see the, the landing gear comes down, you know if you're over by Heathrow or by JFK, and you look at it, and sometimes what really fucks me up is like when you see a a flight from Asia come over, and you're like the last time that piece of rubber on those tires touched earth that was asia and that was that was 11 hours ago 
It was nothing. And that touched, that touched Seoul or, you know, or Beijing or, and, and I still, and now I'm seeing the results of that. Just, you know, I, yeah, air travel. Yeah, just do not get over that ever. That, that is not something I cannot, I cannot get used to that. Do you think you know how to switch off? <laughs> it's funny, you're asking all these questions that I've heard from Rosanna and my mom. Um, no, no, I don't think so, uh, but I do, definitely do. And I think uh, the camera helps because that's why that that's what it does because it totally focuses your attention same thing as fishing it is it is a sort of a baseline activity you know like blinking breathing walking that your brain can do just but it's like 1 degree higher than that where it's just asking a bit more of your brain's concentration to take you out of everything else to switch off but you're still switched on to something specific you got a task at hand and you know, what you, climbers, what have you, all these people you want to talk about flow state or Zen. Uh, and that, that, you know, there's that graph where that, that sort of, uh, you know, dare not use the word mindfulness because it's such a thing now, but that moment where you are, you are engaged with an activity that requires just the right amount of skill that you are engaged, you are challenged, but not too challenged that you are frustrated. And you're like, holy shit, I can't do this. But it's not, it's, the task is not so rote to you that you can do it blindfolded and that it's, it's boring. And you are, then you are at this sort of axis of, of like perfect engagement where you are challenged just enough that you are enjoying the challenge before it gets too difficult and you become frustrated. Or if you fall down the other side, you become bored because it's not engaging enough. And I find the camera is great for me. I don't find, I can't do that with drawing or painting because it's too challenging. I can't do it. My hand-eye coordination is not, not right. I can't do it with writing. Um, it's too challenging. Uh, photography is just the right amount of ask for my brain to be at that perfect knife's edge of engagement where I still can appreciate, um, I don't know, taking note of what that cloud is likely to do the next five minutes and where I might be if we're walking or hiking or can I come back here tomorrow or is this portrait on the verge of becoming something I haven't done before. It's, and, and meanwhile, uh, you know, taking another meter reading uh, just to double check that my work's, the exposure's fine. And, and then, you know, that's a good day. That's perfect. You spend a day like that, and then, uh, you know, it's great. Maybe and again, maybe you didn't take a photo, but you can still ask yourself all those questions. And that's why it's not a joke. But you can actually walk around with a camera with no film in it, and if you're still figuring it out, you kind of get the same pleasure. Because at the end of the day, like I don't know, you want to see the photo afterwards? You already you already lived it. Do you need to see it again? I don't know. Eight-year-old Michael didn't think so. No, but then I maybe I've kind of given up. Uh, I've given up on yeah, shit. I guess I've kind of given up on on the thought that I can really teleport. That's too bad. Is it? I guess. I mean, no. I. Uh, it's not. It's really not. I. You know when when Google when 
Google Maps came out, first came out, and I, you know, discovered that, I was like, this is how I'm going to spend my senile years. I'm going to sit in a hospital bed or whatever, you know, I'm picturing the worst case scenario or whatever, and I'm going to just, just drive back and forth down, you know, up and down Wharfdale or between Glasgow and Glencoe on Google Maps on Street View and just, uh, just look at it because it's like this, that is also a mind fuck. I, I still can't get over that that pretty much every street in the world is being photographed that way. Now, of course, I'd like to try to change the perspective, but uh, yeah, I still, I still would love to teleport. Uh, I still, but I think actually I would like to, I wish I had spent more time looking at some of my own work, maybe. I was literally just about to ask if you ever look at your own work. Oh. Do you ever teleport? I need to do that. Look, I don't. I don't practice meditation. I don't. I don't sit. I. I don't do yoga. Like I. I always. It's always a New Year's resolution. Uh, this would effectively be the same thing for me to do that, and I really ought to. But I don't. I should do it more. I have. Uh, I have photos loaded up on my phone, in with the intention that sometimes if I'm bored on the subway or at night. I could look at those photos and just practice my practice of wanting to teleport and look at a landscape that I deeply love and try to be there. Uh, but I, uh, I probably just open up the New York Times and read the latest news instead. I'm going to start doing it. You've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to start doing that. Maybe you don't need to. Yeah, I don't know. No, it's... I really, sh I mean, that was the whole purpose of it, man. I mean, that's like what I started wanting to do. I don't know. Maybe that's the thing. I maybe gave up because it was too hard because I, I figured, you know, why has nobody else figured out how to teleport? Maybe they didn't, they didn't try hard enough. Um, I might still be able to try to do it. But do you need to? It would be. Uh, <sighs> You're not eight years old. No. The goals of eight-year-old Michael don't matter anymore. The process of those goals was brought you here. Yeah, but I, I do think it would be. I don't. I guess I don't feel the need to. I've. Um, but maybe that's. Maybe that's still the wrong answer. Like I think, I still think I should try. This really sounds really funny. This is going to sound ridiculous. Like what we're talking about, the super, super metaphysical about it. But uh, I, I get such a kick. I guess what has, I, the difference between now and when I was eight is I get more of a kick in the process of making the photo because I feel the, my experience of making the photo in the moment now supersedes any satisfaction of ever looking at the photo. So whereas, as, and I've never actually said that before, that's a new thing for me to come across. When I was eight, let me try to rephrase that because I, I, I got to hold on to that thought. When I was eight, I was trying to get to the end result. I was trying to get the print. Try, I was preparing myself for a month later when I'd be back home in Virginia so I'd have the print in hand to get back. I was, I was worried about leaving. I was, trying, I, was, I was trying to pack a bag. I was trying to pack so that I could get back to the place I was. 
and I probably wasn't being very in the moment, very present, because I was so concerned about my situation in September when I was going to be in third period algebra. But now I guess I'm more successful. I guess the solution is I no longer am so concerned about being successful in building a teleportion tele teleporting device. That as long as you just keep taking photos or thinking about taking photos, you kind of it kind of worked out. You kind of you kind of stopped. Uh, you kind of solved the problem because you're probably now in the moment in the way that your future self wants to be in the moment. This is this. I, I'm really I'm really trying to work this out in my brain. But I think that's it. You kind of you kind of just pried that thought open in me. You really did. Carry a camera. Then you don't have to worry about not being in the place. I don't know. I don't. I, you know, I always felt like nostalgia was born or comes out of um, a recollection of your previous self. That at a moment, at that moment in your previous existence, was not concerned with the projection of the future. This, the, this is, this sounds crazy, but you're basically just recalling yourself where you, you're, you're in the present, you're in the moment. And I was most nostalgic about those moments where I was in the moment. That tended to be in Yorkshire during the summers. Now it's whenever I'm taking photos. Yeah, I mean. <clears throat> I'm really wary of going any deeper into this because we've gone really deep into it, which is, I mean, it's, this is what I do. I love it. But it occurs to me that you started a process. How old are you? I'm 38. You started a process 30 years ago Yeah. that was centered around, dare I say it, not maybe not fear, but around desperation and wanting to make sure that you could stay in Yorkshire. No doubt. Even though you couldn't. No doubt. And you just haven't stopped. No doubt. No, I think there's a whole, it's around the same time, you know, as a kid, you know, you become aware of mortality and the whole brevity of life and all of that. And um, yeah, and also homework that was coming up in the next school year. Uh, all those nasty things. But this story has a happy ending because yeah. you are part of a very exclusive club of people who have photographed a Siberian tiger. <laughs> yeah. And Sophie gave me her version of that story, but I think you should give me yours because I think it sums everything we have discussed up perfectly. Okay, Sophie, uh, yeah, that's just libel and scandalous slander that, that she... Uh... She spreads rumors about my <laughs> failure to photograph a tiger. That's that's her take on it. I have photographic evidence of said tiger. It's uh, I got it. It's not a great shot, but I. She says that I was. I I missed the opportunity because I was changing film or reloading film. So there's some sort of slight against shooting on film versus digital. Not so the case. We had been on this road. Um, on a snowy sort of mountain access fire road or what have you, going to a cabin 
with a bunch of tiger conservationists and we were intending to spend the following week basically changing out SD cards on game cha- game cams uh, and with the sort of vague hope that we were going to uh, capture some tigers on, on these, these game cams uh, at best. Going down this road, uh, it, you know, it, was, it was snowed in, so we turned down it and not too long afterwards, we come across all these these tracks in the snow, and sure enough, it's we get out, we look at them. They're they're tiger tracks. They're huge. I've never seen anything like it. And this gets better and better because we keep on going. The animal's staying on the road, and evidently, it's it's sleepy. It keeps on. We see that it, it it's laid down in the snow. This is really recent. This is this has happened today. Um, there's little tufts of fur. Uh, we keep on finding its poop. And then uh, we've seen little spots of blood up around the mouth. So our guy, or you know, sort of the guide, is informing us it's likely that the tiger has probably just recently eaten. The blood is not its own, but it's 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 leftover blood from what it just ate. That's why it's taking all these poops all over the place. The thing is, it's like all cats. You know, they it 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 eats a ton, and then it just walks around and sleeps it off constantly. It's during the middle of the day, it's, they're, they're, they're sleepy. And so it was walking every, every uh, quarter mile, the thing was taking a nap right down in the middle of the road. Uh, we could see it, and I mean, the thing, we got tape out, it's like 13 feet long, the thing's massive. Um, so w- this goes on, and at a, after a certain point of 45 minutes of driving down this road, we got to go down at like 30 miles. Um, we're, we're like no longer even concerned with these tracks. It's not really, uh, I mean, there's no chance, of course, that we're going to see it. It'll have wandered off into the woods. Um, although it was close, but you know, we're not going to see it. Like you're never going to see it. This guy says that he sees a tiger in the wild with his own eyes, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year. He's out there the whole time. Uh, so we're just talking about other stuff. We've kind of, you know, the topic of conversation is no longer like our incredible luck to, be following these very fresh tracks and lo and behold after a while we turn a corner in the middle of the conversation i happen to be filming on my iphone video and i i i, I recall this the our driver had just says tigra and i drop the iphone and pick up my one of my two cameras one of which was with my very longest lens in the case that this was going to happen in the, the you know it's, I never really used this sort of long wildlife lens let's call it and sure enough there was a tiger getting up from the middle of the road maybe 400 yards around this bend and it sort of casually got up and shook itself off took a stride and then walked right off into the woods and and was gone but I and in fact an argument to Sophie, I reckon I was so quick on the draw that my photo was not that great because I got the I got the photo of the tiger as it was just up on its front two legs. It had not yet put itself on all fours. It was getting up sort of lazily. And so you do see its head, but it's not quite in full profile, which would have been fabulous. But uh, yeah, I got the photo. It wasn't, I, I didn't fail to get a photo, but it was only one. I didn't get it. You know, it was a moment that it was there, and then it heard and saw the car, and it walked off into the woods. Did you see the tiger without looking through a lens for any moment, or were you back camera to your eye? I I think I may have. I but I don't I don't recall I don't recall the sensation. I don't recall that. I have no no. Uh, I have no romantic. I can't say that I do. Uh, I remember 
more just holding my breath and, you know, incredible surge of adrenaline and then not quite believing it and actually just being quite exhausted after it, like the entire day. Uh, it was it was absolute adrenaline crash afterwards later on because what we what we saw was we had never expected that absolutely there was no reason to like it wasn't even you wouldn't even dare to hope to to see that and so i think it was it was hugely shocking afterwards that just trying to come to terms with the fact that that just happened and it's like well we're not really going to top that for a long time yeah I mean, I'm holding a book in my hands, Siberia by Michael Turek, that has 90 plates, 90 photographs in it. Yeah. Did the tiger make the book? No, it didn't. It, it, it... So you have a photograph <laughs> of a Siberian tiger in a project about Siberia. The book is called Siberia, and the tiger didn't make the book. Why no, is that? Um, I, I, the people from that day there's there's quite a number of the people from the day that that i was around and spent the preceding week or the following week with those guys they're in the book and for me and and my sort of interest that that tells a story for me that was more i don't want to say more important um just it resonated more for me there is i okay well the, the picture of the tiger is not in a um Let's just say it's not up to par, really. It wouldn't really, um, wouldn't really fit. But to me, you you know, if you describe Siberia, and this is, I think, important because a lot of people have traveled a lot, and people are always asking me, "Well, what's your favorite place? What's the most beautiful place you've ever seen?" And not to be glib, but I I I tell them that eventually. Any one mountain range begins to resemble another. Another desert looks like another desert. Bit of water looks like some other water. The one thing though, that I always remember, the thing that I miss and the thing that I want to go back to, it's the people you meet. And that's the description of a place more than, uh, more than any other um, slope of a mountain or a type of a forest. It's those, are, those interactions with the people uh, is, is to me what what describes a place and the memories you have with those people and those experiences is, is how it actually, like that's how it's, um, I don't know, you know, like, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to hear it kind of thing. Well, you, any one experience, I do feel like, you know, that, it, that the experience that is shared, that becomes a definition of that place for me. And so for that experience that, that I had with the tiger, that is, described by some of the portraits of some of the people that I was with there because I could describe to you what the tiger looks like and it would sound like a tiger but I'd rather tell you about the story about the guy who works there uh, and how he's trying to basically push off illegal lumber and people that are what he what his efforts that he's trying to work in this conservation field uh, what his what his son was like, uh, what his uh, his Uzbek chef friend I don't know what you want to call him sort of housemate who lived with him was and and the, the branching stories of all the people that were involved uh, in that world because I, I'd rather describe the tiger through those people rather than like well because we've all seen a tiger I mean 
half I mean I had a tiger stuffed animal as a kid I mean it's not the same I don't want to diminish it but to me that's that's a description of of that tiger really it's really through the people it's perfect I think we'll leave it there Thanks for listening. For more information, visit the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. The podcast is also produced in association with Sidetrack Magazine, an outstanding publication that features incredible stories of adventure. You can find more at sidetrack.com. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do tell your friends and also please take 10 seconds to leave us a review on iTunes. They make the world of difference to us. Thanks very much and see you next time.